Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, September 30th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the best movies at Fantastic Fest 2019. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And writer, Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. So you guys are both back after being in Austin for a week for Fantastic Fest. Uh, how was the festival? I'll defer to Chris here because it was his first time at this fest. Chris, how was your first Fantastic Fest? Uh, it was a lot of fun. It's it's very uh, exhausting. I've I've done several film festivals, and I actually think this is probably the most exhausting uh, because yeah, um, wh- why? Because I don't. I mean, well, are you staying up and partying and stuff? Or yeah, it's so you know, TIFF is. Yeah. A, is very much a working festival in that you're always working. You're always going to movies and somehow that is less exhausting than this because yes, you're working. Yes. You're seeing movies, but uh fantastic fest is very much a, a social festival uh, and socializing, at least for me is exhausting. I, I get really tired <laughs> just having to talk to people a lot and, 
you know, don't get me wrong. I had a great time hanging out with people, you know, uh, you know, I get to see people I don't normally see, but after a while it, it wears you down. And also, yeah, you're, you know, you're, you're, even though you're in one building pretty much the entire yeah, day. I, I, I was going to say, Tiff, you're running around Toronto. You're like running from one side to the other. Here you're like staying in the same theater and you're, you know, basically sitting there. You don't even have to leave the theater to eat food even. Right. Well, that's, that's my next point. Yes, you're in one building, but all the food in that building is really bad for you. And <laughs> there's also just uh, a constant opportunity to drink alcohol. So basically you're you're talking with people all day, you're eating terrible food and you're drinking all day. And after a while, but, it, it by the way, those, out. those three things you described, I think, would be like a party for everybody else. But to you, it's exhausting. <laughs> It, it is a party and it's fun, but if you're partying every night, it, it's going to tire you out. Not, you know, not even, you know, not even like rock stars can keep up this, this level of, <laughs> of consistency. And by, I, I was, I did pretty well, but by the, my second to last night, I was pretty much uh, ready to collapse. And my last day there, I was so out of it that I almost regretted because the, the the night before my last night, I did, you know, the full blowout with you know karaoke and all that stuff, and I kind of as as much fun as I had uh, the next day. I was so dead to the world that I wished I had planned better. Because my 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 last day there, I was pretty much just like a zombie. Chris, I have to ask because people need to know what song did you sing at karaoke. Uh, I did several songs at karaoke. I did uh, Possum Kingdom by the Toadies. I did I'll Make a Man Out of You from Mulan. I did Flagpole Siddhaf by Harvey Danger. <laughs> I did a lot of songs. And uh, You used to fun. be in a band. I was. I was the, the lead singer of a band. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, if someone can Google and find some songs from Chris. Uh, are they available anywhere online? Uh, I don't think so, and we're all the better for it. <laughs> okay, so we're going to go through both of your top 10 lists for the festival. Uh, I'm wondering, there really isn't much crossover here at all. There's only one film, and we'll talk about that when we get to you know that film reoccurring. But uh, why is that? Did you guys see different movies? I think a big piece of it is that uh, there was a very large chunk of the festival this year that was also playing at TIFF. So I don't think Chris included anything he saw there. Am I correct? Right, yeah, all the the quote unquote big movies, the big showy movies like Knives Out and uh, the Lighthouse and stuff like that, I had already seen at TIFF, and some other stuff I had seen elsewhere, like The Lodge, I saw at Sundance. So uh, there was a lot of crossover. So I mostly focused on smaller things and like obscure things that I really had no real info about going into and stuff like that. Jacob, how is your Fantastic Fest this year? Because I know you go every year, and this is your like favorite time of the year. Yeah, it's, it was a good fest. I mean, every year it's you know, as Chris said, it's an excuse to drink, eat, uh, see people, and party. It's all in one location. Even when you're working, you can sort of jot off to the press area, which is, you know, three seconds from a bar, you know, and even drink while you work. So it is very much an excuse to have a good time, and it decide. It is the best run festival I've ever been to. Um, I feel like the press people there really generally care about our job and we go out of the way to help us. There was never a situation where I was needing for something as a member of the press. 
and because of the uh, system that the that you operate in uh, at the fest, where there's no lines, you uh, choose what you want to see via a lottery system, and you wait for your number to be called, and you just walk in whenever it's time. Uh, there's just no tension. There's no uh, sense of dread. Like there's so many times I'll be in a two-hour-long line at Southwest, and I'm wondering. You know, am I going to get into this movie? I need to see it because uh, I need to see it for work. The press people aren't responding. Oh, my God, what do I do? But Fantastic Fest, uh, if I need something for work, uh, I, I know if I'm getting in that day. I know 24 hours in advance. And it's just – it allows me to – it makes covering the festival and attending it a breeze. And I know Chris made it sound exhausting. It, it, it is if you do want to have the full party experience. <laughs> but there is no – festival that i think is more pleasurable to actually physically attend yeah i know when i was going and by the way even if you don't do the full party experience if you're just in that one location seeing movies like you could see more movies than i think any other festival because of that whole setup because you're guaranteed five movies a day if you if you fill up the the lottery system the day before uh you're guaranteed five movies a day if if you choose to see that many yeah it's pretty insane okay let's get into it let's start at number 10 jacob was your number 10 um, number 10 is a film Chris saw at TIFF, Color Out of Space, Richard Stanley's H.P. Lovecraft adaptation starring Nicolas Cage. This film seems to divide people. Uh, I am a big Lovecraft fan, and I think Richard Stanley's approach here works, which is to uh, adapt Lovecraft's uh, cosmic horror ideas with zero irony and uh, zero uh, sense of um, uh, modern self-deprecation, which means that the silliest ideas are... Uh, of the original story are presented with a, such a straight face that some people find them funny or cheesy or hokey. Uh, personally, I really dug it. I, I dug that it takes the big uh, sci-fi horror ideas very seriously. And I was able to roll with the fact that the tone, you know, is so self-serious and earnest. And Nicolas Cage is doing really big, crazy work here in ways that I don't think always work for the film. But I ultimately came down on the side of thinking that he's, he's always worth watching. He's a lot of fun here. Uh, also, if you're like a big fan of like old school weird fiction and Lovecraft, there's a ton of Easter eggs. It's it made me really want to see Richard Stanley or people at Spectre Vision who produced this film just make more low budget, you know, but serious minded H.P. Lovecraft movies. And yeah, Color Out Space. It's uh, I think it's, it's going to be streaming by the end of the year, I believe. It's available on VOD in some capacity, and it's it's a very good um, Lovecraft adaptation. It's certainly you know more serious than Reanimator and more serious than Dagon and other movies that tend to to a goofy version of that kind of horror. So I'm really happy to see it, and I enjoyed it a lot. And Chris, what is your number 10? Uh, my number 10 is a film called In the Tall Grass, which is a adaptation of a Stephen King and Joe Hill short story. Joe Hill is, if anyone doesn't know, Stephen King's son, actually. And um, I don't... <laughs> I don't love this adaptation, but I appreciate it. I think if I hadn't read the story beforehand, I'd like this even more because uh, the story is really, really nasty. And it it has this really bleak ending and the movie kind of chickens out. It kind of, it kind of uh, takes the, uh, the coward's way out and it tries to have its cake and eat it too, in that it gives itself, a lot of dark and twisted stuff, but it also tries to lighten it up a bit. And I get that. I get they were trying to make it more palatable. Um, At the same time, it's a lot of fun to watch. Um, Patrick Wilson is in this and he is uh, having a ball playing uh, for lack of a better term, the villain of the, of the piece where he's just this 
completely crazy guy wandering around in uh, this tall grass, and he, he keeps trying to drive everyone around him crazy as well. And it's clear that he's having a great time, and watching him have a great time makes the movie a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I, I wish it had been a bit more like the, the story. I wish it had kept the story's bleakness, but um, if I separate myself from the story, I, I, I do enjoy what you'll see here. And this is going to be dropping on Netflix uh, later this month. Yeah. Um, okay. Number nine. Jacob, what is your number nine? Number nine is Sweetheart, new film from director J.D. Dillard. And you've seen his first film, uh, Slight, right? Yeah, I really loved it. I loved it. I saw it at uh, Sundance a few years back. And he's actually attached to do a remake of The Fly. So he his career is kind of skyrocketing upward. Uh, I'm very interested to hear what this uh, what you thought of this film. Uh, Sweetheart is really good. And... Uh, it's not at all what I was expecting. It's 82 minutes long. It has very little dialogue. And uh, Kiersey Clemens from Hearts Beat Loud plays a woman who is uh, shipwrecked on a deserted island. Uh, she uh, she washes up with the dead body of one of her friends and uh, soon learns that she's not alone on this island. Every night, a creature emerges from the ocean looking to hunt and collect food. And it's just an incredibly intense, almost one-person show where Kirsty Clemens has to survive on an island by the day by finding food and shelter and by night by hiding from a monster. And it is incredibly intense. It has a... I don't know if the shot's in the trailer or not. So I haven't watched the trailer. And I hope they don't reveal it. But it has one of the best monster reveal shots I've seen since Signs. You know what I've seen in Signs, Peter, where Joaquin Phoenix is watching the videotape from that birthday party and the alien appears and it's amazing? Yeah. Um, it's that good. It's, it's like it's like, it's like there's that scene and now this one. Um, it is an exceptionally uh, uh, good monster reveal. And the movie lives up to that reveal for the most part. Uh, when the monster is practical and most of its close-ups, it's a really effective design. The budget is stretched a little thin when CGI and like some more dynamic shots, but overall, this is mostly a uh, testament to how good Clemens is. You know, it's a one-woman show, and how well how well Jay Dillard's able to wring uh, suspense out of you know woman versus monster in ways that I found uh, increasingly entertaining. Even though there are some there are some dips here and there, but this movie's going straight to VOD in October, and it should be a big screen movie. It, it, it's, a, it's a Blumhouse production. It's low budget. Uh, but there's nothing in this movie that says VOD, you know, B-movie junk. It is an extremely slick, beautifully made, well-acted horror movie. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an exceptional creature feature. Uh, Chris, I know you had a screener for this. Did you catch up with this? I actually watched it just last night, and uh, I did enjoy it a lot. Um, I do think it does does have that dip that you mentioned, and but that monster reveal is great. And what I really liked most about this movie is that it just – it's it, it is what it's selling. Like I kept waiting for like a really dumb twist where it's like, Oh, the monster is all in her head and she's just crazy because I feel like no one could just make a straightforward monster movie anymore. They have to like add some big dumb twist like that. And that never happens. It's literally just her fighting a monster and it's so simple. And I was like, I, I like how simple that is. So yeah, I did like this, but I didn't include it on my list just because I felt like, I watched it last night, so it doesn't really count. I didn't really watch it at Fantastic Fest. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what is your number nine, Chris? Uh, my number nine is The Wave. And this is a movie that uh, caught me by surprise. I, I knew nothing about this going into it. Um, uh, this should also not be confused with another movie called The Wave, which also played Fantastic Fest a few years back, which is about a literal 
wave, like a tidal wave. Um, this is a film. It stars Justin Long. Um, he's this really shady corporate lawyer. And uh, the movie starts off. It's him in his office. And I was like, oh, this is going to be terrible because it's like the first like five minutes are filled with these really like broy douchebaggy jokes. And I was like, oh, is this what the whole movie is going to be? Because if it is, I need to get up and leave. But it actually turns into this really strange, oddly sweet movie um, where uh, he, he goes out to celebrate a big uh, deal he's closing as part of being a lawyer. And he takes this mysterious drug from this mysterious guy at this mysterious party. And the drug literally enables him to travel through time and uh, I, I won't say too much more because the less you know, the the more ex- the more fun the movie is. But really, the movie is all about him learning to be less of an asshole. So it's sort of like a time travel version of Groundhog Day. You know how Groundhog Day is all about Bill Murray's character learning to be not a, a an asshole, and that's really what this is about. Justin Long's character learning to be a better person. So is this while- like Russian Doll? In a way? Kind of. Russian Doll is a million times better than what this is. Yeah. But uh, this is just something I, I, like I said, I knew nothing about it. And so it, it sort of caught me by surprise about how how enjoyable it is. And there's a lot of like trippy visuals in it. And Justin Long is is, is, is pretty good in this. He's he, he does a good job carrying a lot of uh, he, has, he, he has to do a lot in this movie. He has to balance a bunch of stuff and he does a pretty good job um, doing it all. So uh, uh, this is one of those movies. I don't know if anyone's ever going to see it. Like, I feel like this is something that's going to go like straight to VOD and no one will talk about it. So if you hear about it, check it out. The wave. That's too bad. I just tried to add it to my letterbox to the films, you know, I, I want to see. And it was even hard finding it on the list on Letterboxd. So. Right, because I think there's like 30 movies <laughs> called The Way. It doesn't help that it has that really generic title, but it, it is worth saying. Yeah. Uh, Jacob, what's your number eight? My number eight is Chris's number three, so I'm going to defer to him and we'll talk together when we get there. Okay. Uh, Chris, you're number eight then, I guess. Uh, my number eight is a movie called Fractured, and this is um, directed by Brad Anderson, who directed um, Session 9. And Brad Anderson really hates hospitals because this movie, like Session 9, is about a, a spooky hospital. Um, <laughs> uh, the hospital here is actually occupied, unlike Session 9, where it's a, an abandoned hospital. Um and this movie, it stars uh, Sam Worthington, who's you know one of those Australian actors who is – normally very bland and very dry and really should probably just stop being in movies, but he's surprisingly really good in this. This is, I think without question, like the best performance he's ever given. Um, This movie, it's, it's very predictable. You're going to know where it's going right from the start, but Brad Anderson like directs the hell out of this so much so that it, it made me really just look past how, how obvious it was and just really get on the same wavelength of, you know, what he was trying to do here. Um, I almost don't want to like say the synopsis because the synopsis will literally give away what the hell is going on here. But basically uh, Sam Worthington and his family, they, they have a sort of accident and they end up in a hospital and Sam Worthington's wife and daughter disappear. And then everyone starts telling him like, Oh, you checked into this hospital alone. 
And this is uh, a very tired and true plot line. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock did the story uh, on a train. Uh, it's called The Lady Vanishes. And that was later remade in a, as a movie called Flight Plan with Jodie Foster, where she's on a plane and her daughter disappears and everyone says, you never had a daughter. So the story itself is nothing new. Um, so if you've seen either of those movies, you might know where that's, this is going. But um, I, I just I kind of enjoyed it despite how obvious it was it's laundry folding the movie it's like the ideal netflix film you, you put it on while you, while you do your laundry it's not bad uh, i think chris liked it more than i did but it's hitting netflix soonish and it's totally fine brad anderson's one of those directors that i think should get more credit than he does like he did you know you mentioned session nine but he did the machinist he did trans-siberian he did um there's a bunch of movies he did, he did like some uh what was that movie I the first movie I saw him do Next Stop Wonderland but I'm thinking of there's like a time travel Happy Accidents um like he's done some good stuff and some good TV too like he he's done episodes of The Killing and um yeah he's he's yeah. a really good filmmaker who does sort of like bargain basement movies like he did that movie the call with like Halle Berry where she's a 911 operator and that movie is actually really entertaining like I, I avoided seeing it in theaters because I the trailer looked like garbage but I watched it on on blu-ray or whatever and it's you know it's a trashy thriller but it's so <laughs> well done he's he's a good director he just sort of makes these really low-grade movies that no one cares about <laughs> do you think he's just picking bad movies I don't know. Maybe he just thinks that's maybe he thinks they're good. I mean, I uh, session nine is, a, I think, a legitimately great movie. Yeah. And, and I don't think he's ever been able to really top that. But, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what his deal is. Jacob, what is your number seven? Uh, my number seven is a film that Ben saw at Sundance earlier this year. The Death of Dick Long is from director Daniel Scheinert. He's one half of the team that made uh, Swiss Army Man a few years ago. But he's solo this time around. And as the title implies, uh, the movie opens with uh, a man named Dick Long is dead and his buddies dropping off at the hospital and they spend the first half of this movie desperately trying to keep how he died a secret and the, the back half of the movie trying to um, keep things from boiling over even worse and it is um, and I, I want to say compared to Fargo in that it's set in Alabama and it's very attuned to the region it never quite makes fun of Alabama even though Alabama is the source of a lot of the humor it is actually very affectionate and tender and loves its characters and like loves its region, uh, even though it you know acknowledges how backwards it can be. And the main characters are not criminals; they're 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 not they're not like masterminds. So watching these very ordinary hillbilly types try to cover up what happened to their buddy is at first very tense, and then very funny, and then very horrifying. And as you learn what happened to Dick Long, uh, it shouldn't work as well as it does. But the movie is so in tune with his characters and so uh, so measured in how it treats the situation it's really hard to um fall off the rails if i told you what happened to dick long and told you to plot synopsis of this like in a wikipedia style format you'd roll your eyes like I, if i knew this was about beforehand i probably would not have watched it but it is so funny and so tense and treats some really awful subject matter uh with a with a certain amount of humanity that i was not expecting so this is the death of dick long it's hit, uh, hitting theaters later this year it is Go in not knowing much. Don't read any synopsis other than know that it is going to ask you to empathize with some really gnarly behavior. Okay. Uh, Chris, what is your number seven? 
Uh, it is another Netflix movie. There's a lot of Netflix movies at Fantastic Fest. Uh, and it's called In the Shadow of the Moon. And it's um, from Jim Mickle, who uh, he directed um, a horror movie called Stakeland. He directed this movie called Cold in July, which I really like, which I also think like no one on Earth has seen except me. But um, this movie, it's this really weird hybrid of like every single genre. It's it's horror it's sci-fi it's mystery it's action it's a thriller it's it's like all that and more and it's really ambitious and uh it doesn't quite stick the landing like it goes for this sort of really big emotional ending that i really think they were trying to be like like they they saw arrival and they were like oh we need a big emotional arrival ending and they they don't quite get there but um, it's it, beyond that. I, I I really liked how how well made this was made. Um, this is another movie that stars a really boring guy. Uh, it stars Boyd Holbrook, who I think is one of the most boring actors on the planet. And I feel like if he weren't in this movie, it would be so much better. But the fact that he's in it, it's not as good as it as it could be. Um, uh, this movie, it's set in Philadelphia, which always, uh, interests me because I grew up in Philadelphia. And even though this movie was clearly shot in Canada, it doesn't really like the skyline is obviously Philadelphia, but every time they cut to a street, it's like, Oh, that is not a single street anywhere in Philadelphia. But, um, it's, it's about uh, Boyd Holbrook is this cop. And every nine years, this, this serial killer just, sort of surfaces out of nowhere and she kills people in really gruesome ways. And he becomes obsessed with, with trying to find out, you know, who she is and where she comes from and what her motives are. And it, it, it spans several decades. Like it starts in the eighties and it ends, you know, in present day. And uh, it, it gets a little muddled with what it's trying to say. Um, but the execution is so uh, well done. Like, I, I don't think this was a big budget movie, but it looks great. And there's some really great, uh, like, action scenes in this movie that that I didn't realize Jim Mickle had in him because he tends to direct really sort of low lower key movies. But there's a few, like, big chase sequences that look really exciting. So uh, I'm very curious to see if, like, this gets him, like, bigger budgets and it lets him make like bigger movies and yeah, this is good it's, it's also streaming now i think like it literally started streaming the day after Fest Fest ended and it's really worth your time it is a really really interesting movie and i don't want to say more than that other than that i really enjoyed it as well i actually thought Stakeland was going to get him more work not that that is an amazing movie but it's a high concept thing that was done on a low budget and it felt like you know he would get bigger meetings from that but I don't know what happened. Uh, Jacob, what is your number six? My number six is a film that Chris saw and enjoyed out of TIFF, and that is Dolomite Is My Name, new film from director Craig Brewer. And this is uh, Eddie Murphy's big return to form, uh, where he plays Rudy Ray Moore, an aspiring entertainer in the 70s who creates a new onstage persona uh, and decides that his character deserves his own movie and ends up making Dolomite, one of the you know seminal exploitation films of that era. And this film is, in many ways, it's Ed Wood, a Tim Burton film, but for black exploitation, which makes sense because it's written by the same writers and they kind of follow that same format. But don't fix what isn't broken because uh, Dolomite is My Name is as good as Ed Wood. It is spectacular. It's funny. It is one of those, you know, movies about a group of uh, 
outcasts who come together to make an art project that they shouldn't be doing, but it works anyway. Uh, and I love movies like that. And Eddie Murphy is um, really funny, but also really moving as Rudy Ray Moore. Because he's allowed to, like, you know, break out his typical uh, mannerisms when he performs, when he's playing a character on stage or on the film, the film within a film, I mean. Uh, but also, like, just the quieter scenes between those where, like, he's, you know, struggling to make ends meet, where he's battling his inner demons, where he's, you know, trying to come to terms with the fact that, you know, he's in his in his 40s and is just now trying to break out. It's really moving stuff, and Murphy really brings his A-game to it. And this is being, it's not a Netflix movie. Like, there's a big Netflix presence at Ask Fest this year. And... I thought it was such a great crowd movie. Like everybody was having a great time cheering and applauding and laughing and it'll, it'll play well at home. But I definitely feel like this is the kind of movie that Netflix should have looked into giving a wide release because it's the kind of movie that Eddie Murphy should be looking at an Oscar nomination. It should be a hundred million dollar crowd pleasing movie. Uh, but you know, here we are, it's going to be on Netflix in about a month and Dolomite is my name. If you like Ed Wood, if you like Eddie Murphy, if you like uh, movies about movie making, uh, this movie's a hoot. I loved it. Okay. Chris, what is your number six? My number six is The Mortuary Collection, and this is a horror anthology film, and I am a sucker for horror anthology films. And uh, I got to say, I gave this a good review, and uh, I didn't give it the most glowing review, though, but uh, at least like several different people who worked on this movie like tracked me down at Fantastic Fest, and they were just the nicest people in the world, and they were like so thankful that i gave the film a review at all so uh shout out to the the mortuary collection uh crew who are very nice people um the 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 set designer in particular i i singled her out because this movie is a a triumph of set design and she like found me in a coffee shop and was just so grateful i even just like mentioned her at all so because people don't really point that stuff out when they're doing reviews and they should especially for movies like this because it looks incredible and uh like all horror anthology movies it has it's 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 dead weight and there's one story in particular in this movie that is so awful that i i really wish they had just cut it completely because if they had i probably would have loved this movie even more um but you know you get you get your good and you get your bad. Um, this actually it started off as a short movie called The Babysitter Murders that they expanded into um, you know this anthology, and that short is the the closing story, and it is without a doubt the best story in the film. And I really don't know what that says that you know that movie was made a few years ago, and yet it still is the best thing in this entire movie. So I don't know if that's like regressive or what because like you would think like oh it can only get better from there but really nothing else tops that short but that short is so good that it almost doesn't matter um uh the the wraparound segment stuff is great um it has clancy brown playing this like he's basically playing the tall man from the phantasm series and he's uh fantastic so much so that i just want this to be turned into like a tv series where he hosts it every week just telling a different scary story so you know maybe maybe like shutter can get on that i don't know but this is a lot of fun if you like horror anthology films i think you'll have fun with this yeah i agree with chris though that the last segment is so above the board spectacular that the rest of the film feels a little weaker for it i kind of it makes me feel weird to say, I wish the last one, I wish the entire movie was a little bit better or I wish the last short was a little bit worse. <laughs> so it felt like a more even thing, but that, that even if you watch it just for the last segment, I think the last segment is 
one of my favorite horror shorts of all time. I'm so happy to hear this because I, I'm not sure you guys probably don't know this, but the producer of this film, Allison Friedman, is actually my neighbor. She like we share a wall. And, I actually uh, do know this because she approached me <laughs> at Fantastic Fest and said, Peter is my neighbor. And I said, wow. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, this is a really good movie. Like overall, it's a lot of fun. I, I, I wish that somehow they managed to top or meet the original short, but that short feels like lightning in a bottle in a big way. This is a really cool movie. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, Jacob, what is your number five? Number five is a film that Chris saw and reviewed of Sundance. So I'll be brief. Our, his quotes are all of the trailer. And that is The Lodge, the new film from the directors of Goodnight Mommy, Severin Fiala and Veronica Franz. And this movie managed to be even more stifling and bleak than Goodnight Mommy. It is about a, um, a broken family going to a lodge uh, in the middle of the, nowhere at Christmas time. It's snowed in. The father leaves for work, leaving his new girlfriend with, the, with his children. Uh, they do not like the girlfriend for reasons that are set up very explicitly in the early set scenes of the film. And soon enough, someone's going crazy. Something's going wrong. It's not clear for a long time who's who's threatening whom, but somebody in this house is in danger. And the tension ratchets up, and the mystery gets uh, more awful. And it goes to some very dark places in ways that I was not quite prepared for. This is a dark, upsetting film, one that I'm not prepared to watch ever again. But The Lodge is also incredibly scary and incredibly intense, and I'm not going to forget it anytime soon. And I know it's originally intended to come out later this year, but I think we just saw it maybe pushed early 2020. But The Lodge is the it's the kind of like deeply upsetting, you know, horror film that people always claim they want and then get and say, oh, that's too much for me. Uh, but The Lodge is a very, very good movie. Chris, do you still do you feel it lingering inside of you uh, almost a year later? Yeah, I actually saw it. I, I saw it at Sundance and I watched it again at the Overlook Film Festival because it was like the closing night film there. And I said, what the hell? I might as well see it again. And uh, I I liked it even more the second time. It is really, really bleak. Um, I like it more than Goodnight Mommy. I'm one of the few people who did not actually care for Goodnight Mommy. But uh, and, you know, while sometimes I can't really handle bleak stuff. I think I, I, I can handle this a little bit more just because of how things sort of play out. But um, I also think this is going to be one of those horror movies that gets a lot of buzz and then people see it and they're like, I didn't like that because nothing happened, even though a lot of stuff happens, but it's a very slow burn, which is like, that, that's my jam. I love slow burn horror, but I know a lot of people don't care for that. Chris, what is your number five? Uh, my number five is a, a German movie called The Golden Glove. And this is a movie I will never watch again, uh, but I'm, I'm glad I watched it the first time. This is, I think, the, uh, the most upsetting serial killer movie uh, ever made since Henry Porcher of a Serial Killer. It has that same sort of grungy, filthy, realistic vibe where it feels like you're not really watching a movie. You're sort of like watching like a snuff film and it's, it's so well made. And uh, it's based on a true story about this um, uh, serial killer in Germany. And it's, it's, it's just nasty and it's filthy and everyone looks like they need uh, several showers. And, um, but it, it, it's presented in this weirdly like human way where it, it sort of like humanizes everyone, even like the killer, even though it, you know, it doesn't make him sympathetic cause it's impossible to make him sympathetic cause he's a monster, but it, it, it portrays him like not as this like 
like inhuman movie serial killer. He's just like an actual guy who just happened to be a terrible person. And uh, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a, it's a tough watch. And um, it actually, it, it, it already played, it, it already debuted in Germany and it was really disliked there because it's a really nasty movie, but I do think it is worth seeing just to experience what, how much like artistry went into making this upsetting movie. Okay. Jacob, what is your number four? Uh, my number four is a new film from Takashi Miike. Uh, it's called First Love. And um, I run hot and cold in Miike since he makes sometimes five or six movies a year. Uh, that's exaggerating, but sometimes he does. Uh, some of his films feel like they're really rushed and cobbled together, and some feel like they're a work of a mad genius. And First Love is the mad genius part of Miike that I really do love, and I wish he would slow down some time so he could make more movies like this. And this is a film about a boxer who learns he's uh, dying. He's been diagnosed with a brain tumor. He wanders out into the streets of Tokyo, sees a woman being chased by a man, knocks the man out, and um, embarks on a uh, voyage of discovery with the woman uh, as they both fall in love and go on a self-discovery journey. And while they're off having their, um, you know, Nicholas Sparks-esque rom-com about discovering themselves, (laughs) they're being chased by a crime story full of Yakuza and corrupt cops and gangsters all tied to the guy he knocked out. So it ends up being this um, collision of storylines as the people who think they're in the Nicholas Sparks movie end up being in this brutal, violent, heads chopping off, gun battle, car chase Yakuza movie. And when both storylines collide for the back, you know, a third of the movie, it's really satisfying and a lot of fun. And the movie never manages to, uh, lose the draw of either storyline it's as exciting and silly and crazy as it is really sweet and sentimental and i was really drawn to just how it manages to let both of those movies collide together in a way that complements them both i mean at no point does the romantic storyline feel threatened by the by the violence and craziness of the um sort of like looney tunes coen brothers-esque craziness of the other half of the movie and I don't know, if you're like me and you like sort of get a little wishy-washy in Mike and you, you know, don't know where to start with him, don't know where to show movies of his to other people, this one is really accessible. It's really fun. It moves at a good pace, and it's, it has enough, you know, romantic sentimentality and head to being lobbed off with the samurai sword. So I think please everybody, uh, that's first love. I have no idea what's coming out stateside, but it's worth seeking out. Okay, Chris's number four is the first of uh, of, of uh, some movies about movies. Chris, tell us about it. Uh, yes, this is Screen Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, and it's a documentary about Mark Patton, who is the actor in uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. And um, uh, he's a gay man, and over the years, uh, not really even over the years, even when it came out, a lot of people notice a lot of gay subtext, or even some people call it just text, in A Nightmare on Elm Street 2. And um, I thought this documentary was going to really just be about, you know, his experience in making that movie. And while it starts off like that, it's really more about his life and his life after that movie and, you know, his his, uh, role in activism. And it's just a really sweet movie. Um, He just just seems like a genuinely great guy. And it's, it's just fascinating to listen to him talk about you know, his journey, both, you know, becoming uh, a, a, 
an actor in Hollywood in the eighties. And he was basically on, you know, on the cusp of becoming a huge star. And this movie, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 sort of just killed his career because, you know, he, he, he was saying that, you know, that was his first big movie and uh, his agents told him, you know, there's no way you can play straight. Basically, you're going to have to be a character actor. And it was, at, you know, at the height of the AIDS crisis. And it just sort of sent him into this tailspin where he didn't want to, you know, be this person pretending to be someone else. And he just gave up on acting. He gave up on Hollywood. He moved to Mexico and opened up this sort of like uh, knickknack shop. And um, the, the movie is sort of about him coming to terms with, you know, his career and his life and a nightmare on Elm street too. And um, I, I will say it's not the best made documentary. It has some sort of like amateurish stuff where like, it'll switch to black and white for literally no reason and stuff <laughs> like that. But um, uh, the message of the movie is so genuinely like moving and the ending is so like emotional that uh, you're, you're able to overlook the the technical flaws and and really embrace this this genuinely good-hearted movie yeah the technical flaws are the only reason it's missed my top 10 it's literally my number 11 and it is less it used to never elm street part two is an is a way to talk about the AIDS crisis and uh lgbtq men and women of hollywood and about you know all all the lessons that that Matt, Matt Patton's generation learned the hard way that he wants to impart on a new generation and he's using horror fans and especially you know queer horror fans as a vessel to talk about things that matter to him so you kind of come for the thinking of be oh it's gonna be the movie about how Nightmare on Street 2 is so gay and you leave going oh yeah um Hollywood in the 80s sucked for gay men it's not like it happen again and it's actually really powerful and goes places I just wish it was better made because it it was a crowdfunded low-budget project and you can really tell but man that, that should not stop you this is a very good movie okay uh Jacob what is your number three my number three is a film that everybody will have a chance to see uh, very soon. That is Knives Out, uh, Ryan Johnson's new murder mystery starring Daniel Craig. And Chris Tall is at TIFF, uh, so, and he wrote a rave review, so I'll be brief on this one as well. Uh, but this movie is just a hoot. It is so much fun. It is a, practically a one-location mystery where a bunch of murder suspects are in one house, and Daniel Craig has to figure out who done it. And it is uh, a blast. Daniel Craig is playing a character who feels like he's wandered out of an entire book series. He feels very complete in a way that kind of you have to imagine his other adventures in your head even as you're watching this one and of course the uh murderer's row of suspects uh everybody from tony collette the chris evans uh uh jamie lee curtis uh michael shannon just this great cast and they're all on fire they're all this whip smart dialogue and it is a very old-fashioned movie like i said there's ryan johnson is really leaning heavily on the, trying to recreate the feeling of agatha christie novel of trying to bring back the whodunit and Mission Accomplished, this movie is so, so much fun. And uh, Anna DeArmas, who is sort of the Watson to Daniel Craig's detective, she's the one who gets to, we get to witness his genius through her <laughs> throughout most of the movie. She is been on the verge of breaking out for a while now, but this is a role that makes me convinced that, yeah, I want to see Anna DeArmas in more things. Chris, how much does Knives Out rule? It is so good. This is probably the most entertaining movie I've seen all year. Uh, and I second that about Anna DeArmas. Um, you know, I, I've seen her in other stuff. She, you know, she's in Blade Runner 2049. But this was like the first time I realized like, oh, my God, she's like a great actress with a lot of range. And she's also really funny. Like she and I, I don't just mean like her delivery, but she has this really great knack for like 
slapstick humor, which no one has like exploited until now. And I really do hope uh, this is her breakout role because in a film with such an incredible cast, I think she's like the standout. And I think that says a lot, especially Hmm. compared to who she's, uh, she's up against. She, she is, this is really her movie. And I really hope it, it, you know, it, it gets her even bigger and better things. Yeah, when I, I interviewed Ryan Johnson uh, after this, and you'll see that interview on the site, you know, closer to release. Uh, but one thing she talked about was how, you know, the heroes of whodunit, like the Sherlock Holmes, or in this case, uh, Daniel Craig's uh, detective, they have to be superheroes. They have to be like sort of the perfect, you know, character who who has to have the big monologue in the end where they solve everything. They're the geniuses. They, and by design, they are the people who can't have arcs. So the movie really falls in Anadarmus to be the character who grows and changes, and we see the mystery through her eyes. Yeah, Walt Disney Craig is allowed to, you know, sort of have a lot of fun. And that seems so thankless on paper, but she pulls it off so well. Yeah. Jacob, your number eight is Chris's number three. And this is another movie about movies. Chris, what is it? This is Memory, the Origins of Alien. And, um, you know, there are a lot of documentaries about movies and my least favorite type are things that are little more than like fan service. Like there's a movie called Wolfman's Got Nars and it's all about the Monster Squad. And I love the Monster Squad, but that documentary is literally just scene after scene of people being like, man, the Monster Squad rules. And it's like, look, I agree but I don't need to watch a whole documentary about this. And then there's a montage of them talking about their favorite character. And then there's a, right. right. Yeah. And there was a, there was a recent one about um, the scary stories to tell in the dark books. And I grew up with those books. They're a huge influence on me. And that is the same thing. It, it's two hours of people being like, man, these books were so cool. It's like, I know, tell me something new. And this movie, uh, which is about, obviously it's about alien. It does the complete opposite. It actually does tell me something new. And uh, alien is a movie I've seen, you know, at least like two dozen times. And, you know, I've watched, you know, the special features on the alien Blu-ray. And, you know, I was like, I know everything there is to know about alien. You know, I went into it with that sort of like smug attitude and, even though this movie does have, you know, go over things I already knew, it, it tells them in this really interesting way that I wasn't expecting. And, and it, it ties like the story into like Greek mythology, which is something I like had really never even considered before. And I just, I was just really impressed with that. Um, so anytime, anytime a movie tells me something that I thought I already knew in a new way, I get really excited and I, I really appreciate that. And so this, this really impressed me. Yeah. What's cool about this is that it's, there's very few, Oh, we, here was a set. Here's how production schedule was like, here's a hard day on this scene. That's very, very little. The movie is production stories. which have been covered extensively. The basic thesis here is that a masterpiece of the level of alien comes about and, reflects and echoes culture uh, and human anxieties, fears, and dreams and beliefs in ways that maybe its creators may not understand, understand fully. So the whole, just even the title, Memory, seems to suggest that all great work is derived from a cultural memory that we all share and may not be able to fully grasp. We can all tap into it every so often, every decade or so, to produce a movie like Alien. And it proceeds to back it up by bringing in scholars and critics and like scientists and people who are much smarter than me and Chris uh, to explain things that I never would have thought of, both 
stuff that's in the text of the film, so it's by the reading, you know, off the text, uh, stuff that involves the literal making of the film, the, the decision you were making, like, on the set, but also things that uh, may have been echoed by accident, but they weren't even realized they were echoing. I'm really all for this kind of cinematic analysis. Have you guys seen this filmmaker's other work? Because I know he made a name for himself, The People versus George Lucas, which I did not like. Uh, but he, he in recent years, had done like a, there was a documentary about zombies called Dock of the Dead, and then there was uh, one on Hitchcock's shower scene. Yeah, I, I saw, I think it's called 42, I forget, it's, it's the whatever the frame rate is of that scene, but I did see... 78.52. Right, yes, I did that. And that's a documentary that it starts off about psycho in general, but then it turns into a documentary all about the shower scene. And I actually was reading that this memory was originally, he was going to do the same thing where it was going to be all about the chest burster scene, but he eventually turned it into something bigger. And um, I, d- I did like the Hitchcock doc. I think I actually like this, this more. Cool. Okay. Uh, Jacob, what is your number two? My number two is Robert Eggers the lighthouse. Uh, Eggers of course made the witch one of the favorite films of the past decade. And The Lighthouse is a very different turn for him. It's not as bleak uh, and as, you know, slow burn as The Witch was. It is, in many ways, it's a comedy. And that's not what I was expecting, uh, based on the trailers. Uh, the Lighthouse is Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe played lighthouse keepers in the 1890s who are stationed for one month on a small, isolated island with a lighthouse. And they don't get along. It is a story of bad roommates. And uh, a friend of the site uh, who I saw the film with, described it as um as, as if as if it's like Stanley Kubrick making stepbrothers and it really really feels accurate because the movie is this surreal uh startling descent into madness with these two guys going crazy in a in a possibly cursed lighthouse but it's also a uh movie about two macho dudes who do not like each other being forced to share a room and hating each other and uh, really uh, piling on the emotional, mental and physical abuse as things go on. I was really hypnotized by this thing. It is a deeply bizarre film. It's shot in black and white and uh, it's not quite a cavity ratio, but it's close. And it looks like it was borrowed from the 1930s, very German expressionism uh, in its style. Uh, but it's also so silly and strange and it floats between like near slapstick comedy and then with scenes of like sea monsters and abject horror and Pattinson and Defoe are so good. Defoe's doing his best old timey sea captain voice and it's hilarious. <laughs> Pattinson is just like, he's like Buster Keaton. He's just, he's just taking abuse constantly, 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 his face not breaking. And when, he, when these two are just going at each other, just yell, eventually it breaks and they start shouting and cursing. And there are scenes where these two are just screaming at each other. And I just could not stop laughing. And I think the key to enjoy the lighthouse is to realize that, Yes, it's a it's a upsetting descent into madness, but it's also really funny. I laughed so much, and, and at the same time, I was like you know chilled to the bone appropriately during other scenes. So, we see a lighthouse, uh, and you should just realize it's okay to laugh. It's maybe from the director of The Witch, but it's okay. This is a comedy. Now, Jacob, I I was not a fan of The Witch, or as much of a fan as The Witch as you were. Am I going to like this? That's a really good question. It is much, it's not as slow as The Witch was. And there's a, a lot more actual things going on. There's a lot more dialogue, a lot more, not necessarily plot, but events occur. Uh, it is definitely not going to be to all tastes. It is very surreal. It is, uh, it is, it's lost a lot of odd style and sometimes placed that style over substance by design. I can't promise you will like it, Peter, but I think you should give it a shot because it is so different. It is clearly the same director, but he's putting his efforts in a very different direction. 
I'll check it out based on your recommendation, Jacob. But what you just said basically sounded like no, you will not. Like <laughs> yeah, P- Peter, I'm very curious. I, I, I can't. I don't think you'll like it, but I really want to hear your reaction to it. I really, I really think you should see it. Okay, Chris, what was your number two? Uh, okay, so my number two is. Um, uh, first, let me just say uh, I love the Lighthouse, and it is it is a really weird movie, but. It has nothing on this film, which is called Reflections of Evil, which is the strangest thing I have ever seen in my life. Um, I watched this on screener. I didn't see it with a crowd, and I can't even imagine what it would be like to see this with a crowd because I imagine a crowd just collectively getting up and walking out of the theater at once because it is (laughs) this. I don't even. I don't think you can even call this a movie. Honestly, this is like a, it's a mixed. Cry for help. Yes, it's a. It's like a cry for help slash mixed media presentation. Um, there's like commercials, like actual commercials, not stuff that's, that were made for the movie. Like literal commercials, just filmed off the TV. Uh, I don't even know what the hell this is. It's the first like twenty minutes. And it feels like an hour, but the first 20 minutes are literally this huge guy staggering around Los Angeles, mumbling, uh, <laughs> trying to sell watches to people. Uh, the like All the audio is like ADR. Like, it's just like they dubbed it in. And it's people like doing voices. Like, he'll go up to someone and he'll be like, hey, you want to buy a watch? And then this like awful voice will be like, no, man, I don't want a watch. And then... He falls down, and when he falls down, geysers of blood come gushing out of his head. Then he gets up, and he's perfectly fine. And then he starts vomiting, and then he starts eating cupcakes. It is insane, and it just keeps going on and on. And uh, the director, he he's actually like snuck onto Universal Studios to shoot scenes. And there's a scene where, like, he goes and he watches a young Steven Spielberg shooting uh, something for, like, a TV show. And uh, the scene of Spielberg shooting a movie is literally, like, Spielberg instructing all these grips to throw dummies around while someone else pounds on a car with a sledgehammer. I don't know (laughs) what this movie... I've never seen anything like this. And as strange as I'm making the sound, it can't compare to actually watching it like i felt like i was going insane while watching it and it's like it's like two hours and like 20 minutes long dude it's oh it's it's insane it is and i i feel like that term gets thrown around way too nonchalantly like you know boy that movie was crazy trust me when i say this movie is crazy this is like a certifiably insane movie. Like if this movie were a human being they would lock it up in an asylum and never let it out I want to say this is – I didn't put this on my list because I wasn't doing any of the um, um, repertory stuff on my list this year. This was a 2002 film uh, written, directed, and starring Damon Packard. And it's it it been restored by the American Genre Film Archive, whose mission is to find the greatest, craziest trash and making sure it's preserved for all eternity in 4K when necessary. And I, I, I'm like, Chris, I watched this in, theater, in the theater with a full crowd. And I think we all knew what we were getting into because you don't pick the um, American Genre Film Archive screenings unless you kind of prepared for this kind of nonsense. But I, I didn't see any walkouts. And but Chris, what Chris is saying is accurate. And seeing it projected in the theater with a friend, so we can turn to each other and like whisper, "What are we seeing? What is happening?" Like every 15 minutes, it's unreal. And I mean, the story here is that David Packard inherited five hundred thousand dollars, 
and went off and shot this two and a half hour long cry for help. And uh, I don't even like it's there. There's entire scenes where great chunks of this film with one of Los Angeles are like essentially Sasha Baron Cohen style thing because he's wandering around against people who aren't actors who are just reacting to this crazy guy trying to sell them watches. As Chris implied, he goes to Universal Studios and to Six Flags Magic Mountain for another, for another sequence. And he like films at the ET ride for like, extended sequences where like the ET animatronics are talking to him. He's talking back to them. He goes to a movie theater and watches the trailers for whatever films were playing that time. Like we, like, we see almost a full trailer for Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, shot in night vision while he's like watching people in the theater like harm themselves in grotesque ways. It is, it can never be released. It, it contains too much stolen footage. There, there are scenes from Goose and Space Odyssey, Close Cars of the Third Kind, just inserted in there. And he steals people's songs. He steals um, like TV show footage and commercials. It is, Chris, uh, this movie made me feel insane. I feel like I was going insane watching it. And then it ends, and then I wanted to watch it again. <laughs> you guys are making me wish there was a way for me to see this. Like, like yeah, if there ever, I don't know how, if there's, like, if, uh, I obviously will never uh, advocate stealing movies, but if somehow, like, a bootleg of this shows up somewhere, like, I imagine, like, if you're in, like, a city one day and you walk by one of those guys who has like a card table set up with bootleg <laughs> movies and this will be sitting on that table. Yeah, but and why would he have this movie? He's going to have like know. the big like... Well, here's what would happen. You would buy the movie and then you would turn around to ask the guy a question and the table will have vanished <laughs> into thin air. Right. And, it'll just be, and you'll have the movie still in your hand. So if, if that scenario somehow happens, please get your hands on this because it has to be seen to be believed. And right. then after you watch it, maybe like lock it in a box and bury it in a your yard or else because I feel like I feel like this movie is like radioactive. Like if you had this in your house, it would so like as you're sleeping, it would seep madness <laughs> out into your brain and you would slowly go crazy. Alright. I want I want to point out that uh this movie was apparently a, a bootleg like gem for years. So if you if you if that is your thing, you, I think you can't find it. But um the American Genre Film Archive they can never make a Blu-ray of it because it has too much stolen material. They can't sell it. It's illegal for them to uh, actually release in any official capacity. But since they're a nonprofit, they can screen it. So you can look to look up the American Genre Film Archives uh, website. And I believe you, if you're a theater owner or if you know somebody who um, you know has a screening room, you can book screenings of it. And they will f- supply a way for you to book screenings of anything in their archive. So this is Reflections of Evil. If you have if you have, the, if you have a movie theater or know somebody who does book reflections of evil and watch this thing as soon as you can. So there you go, Peter, buy a movie theater and then you can finally <laughs> see this movie. Now, I can't afford a movie theater, but I do know an Alamo draft house theater in downtown Los Angeles that could have access to this. Maybe. So hopefully fingers crossed, uh, maybe they'll bring it here to LA. Uh, but okay. Uh, let's move on to our number ones. Jacob, what is your number one film of fantastic fest? 2019. I'm going to jump on the bandwagon for a film that people have been talking about for months now, and that is uh, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, which is it won the Palme d'Or at Cannes Film Festival. It is South Korea's submission for uh, the best uh, foreign language film. It is from you know Bong Joon-ho, who made Snowpiercer, Okja, uh, Memories of Murder, uh, The Host, Mother. And I don't want to like – I feel like I'm building it up too much, but this is the best film I've seen in literally years, maybe four or five years. Uh I was blown away by this film. It is as if if Alfred Hitchcock developed a genuine sense of empathy and curiosity about about human beings, in addition to being a master of suspense, he would have made Bong Joon-ho movies. And Parasite is uh, this 
brilliant, sad, funny, terrifying, dark comedy, satire, drama. I don't even know where to begin to describe it. It is all things. It is all genres. And I don't want to say too much beyond it being about a uh, kid, a lower class kid in South Korea who gets a job tutoring uh, a, it becomes an English tutor for the daughter of a very wealthy uh, family and slowly starts to insinuate himself deeper into their lives. And you shouldn't know more than that going in. But I've never felt my my loyalties between characters in a movie be torn so violently so often. And it starts off being a very funny, dark sort of con artist movie. Evolves into something so much more complex and upsetting. And yes, really, really funny. And this movie should be getting a pretty wide push from Neon uh, since it's you know a big Oscar contender. But I do not remember the last time I was just bowled over by a film. Parasite is... I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say masterpiece. It's a masterpiece, guys. Straight up, it's my favorite film of the year. If something tops this, this is the best year I've, for film in my lifetime. Because Parasite is one of my favorite films of all time. Wow. Okay, I'm adding this to my my list on Letterboxd. Uh, Chris, you saw Parasite? I have not. Seen, I've I've missed it every chance I've gotten. And also, I'm gonna call out the PR people handling Parasite because I've asked them for a screener three times. All three times they said, oh, we're not doing screeners. But I've heard from three different critics that they got screeners. So you're lying to me, PR people. Send me a goddamn screener because I really want to see this. <laughs> okay, Chris, what is your number one film of Fantastic Fest 2019? Uh, my number one film is a film called St. Maud, And this is another slow burn horror movie from A24. And uh, I again, I knew nothing about this going into it. And boy, oh boy, did this uh, knock me on my ass. Um, this is um, a movie about a young woman who is very, very religious. <laughs> and she uh, she, you know, she prays a lot and she gets a job as a, uh, a hospice care nurse and she really wants to save the soul of the uh, the dying woman she's caring for. And that's really all I'm going to say, because the less you know about this, uh, the better it is. But it starts off weird and quirky, and it gets very, very intense. And the, the last um, five minutes are some of the most... Uh, impressive slash chilling moments, uh, like conclusive moments of a film I've seen in recent memory. Uh, like the the final scene alone, like the way it ends, then it cuts to black. I was like, I almost like yelled out like, holy shit in the theater of how it ends. So uh, I don't really know when this is getting a release. And I, again, this is going to be one of those movies that I know general, audiences are going to be like that was too slow but uh i i love this movie to death it's it's one of my favorite of the year and where are people going to be able to see this i don't know in my my house come over and watch it when i get it on blu-ray i'll show it to you <laughs> okay uh that does it for today's episode um you can find links to all of the reviews for all the movies we mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes so check those out please and uh share them and you know add these movies to your upcoming wish list because uh you know we are entering uh the fall movie season uh but okay you can find more of all of us at slashfilm.com you can find this podcast every weekday on itunes google overcast spotify 
please send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slash com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow.